Um, one of the trending uh, issues of the day has been the emergence of and the rise of the Me Too movement. Um, and it's particularly centred on the entertainment industry. Um, Rolf Harris, um, Bill Cosby, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, um, to name but a few. Uh, it's, it's put sexual abuse and harassment uh, very much at the forefront of conversation and consciousness. Uh, it's not only, though, the entertainment industry. I mean, there's been uh, a lot of stuff talking about the New Zealand legal profession and how uh, its culture uh, has a lot of sexism within it. Churches have not been immune from this movement, and leaders from across denominations, from Catholic to uh, conservative to uh, Pentecostal to uh, charismatic, have all been impacted by this. Um, a leader that I have admired, I've got many of his books on my bookshelf, and uh, been in, uh, heard him speak at different conferences, uh, has been um, caught up uh, in uh, this as well, with accusations of um, inappropriate behaviour. The Me Too movement has continued to expose men who have abused their power and leadership. So it seems that this makes the topic, is the Bible sexist? Someone this morning uh, who uh, thought this said, is the Bible sexy? Uh, but actually it says sexist. Um, blame uh, Jeremy's PowerPoints for that. Um, but it does make this topic very relevant because there's a generation of young people growing up who have, are seeing church leaders exposed, who are seeing the Bible used to promote uh, submission of women in marriage and are saying, we don't want anything to do with this. Uh, this male-dominated religion with Father God and uh, many people are asking, is the Bible actually promoting male dominance and sexual violence? And if the Bible is sexist, the implication is, of course, that God is sexist. And why would we want anything to do with such a God? Uh, in my research over the last few weeks uh, on this topic, uh, this is some of the stuff I read. Uh, one article said, why do most evangelical Christians in America support Trump despite his years of demeaning woman? Because Trump's attitude towards woman is squarely rooted in biblical worldview. Ouch. Another article from Australia uh, was about this campaign to get rid of, um, to stop stores like Target and Kmart selling the Bible. The authors of the petition claimed that the sickening book, it's talking about the Bible, encourages readers to commit sexual violence and kill women. Books like this are grooming yet another generation of boys to tolerate violence against women. It's fueling the epidemic of violence experienced by many girls and women in Australia and globally. Ouch. If we've been in church most of our lives, uh, it's very easy to gloss over these accusations because we can often be quite selective in how we read the Bible uh, and push the difficult bits away and say, oh, well, it's God's word. And... But we don't actually have any answers to these accusations. And there's no doubt looking from a faith value from a 21st century world viewpoint, the Bible is sexist. It's full of sexual violence and has been used for centuries to justify male dominance. So it's not hard to come to this conclusion. Uh, and the impact today on young people is huge. So I want to grapple with this question over the next two weeks. Um, I can't deal with every passage of the Bible, so I'm, I'm going to be selective. Uh, there will be opportunity for questions uh, at the end of the session. I don't promise to have all the answers. Um, some of the questions you might have don't easily fit into a soundbite answer. And so if that's the case, I, I would ask that you either text or email me the question or the passage, and um, I will come back to you concerning that. This week, I want to cover really briefly the gender of God, uh, creation, sexual violence, and Levitical law, and end up with Jesus. Uh, next week, I want to start again with Jesus, and then I want to have a look at the New Testament, particularly the teaching of Paul and um, issues of headship and submission and and some of the tricky passages uh, in the New Testament. So, but I just want to pray, uh, first of all, before we start. God, I pray that uh, as I speak, uh, that I would uh, just really reflect your heart. And Lord, that our hearts would be open to ask the hard questions tonight. 
And Lord, if tonight uh, some of the stuff that raised uh, pushes buttons or, or just uh, touches some raw or unhealed areas uh, in people's lives, then God, I ask that your spirit would just uh, yeah, be gently ministering to us uh, in this space. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's have a look at uh, the issue, first of all, God's gender. Uh, I actually, um, when I divided this up, I actually left this one to last. I thought this was easy to deal with this issue. Um, and uh, actually discovered it was quite complex. Mary Daly, I've got no idea who Mary Daly is, but Mary Daly said, if God is male, then male is God. That's quite clever. If God is male, then male is God. God is always called he, sometimes as a father. Jesus was a male. So surely this shows the sexist nature of the Bible and even of God. So let's start with this issue. First of all, this is tricky, this is a really complex issue actually, uh, this issue of gender. I mean, first of all, God is not a physical being. Uh, he is spirit, he has no body, 1 John 4, 12. Now, one has seen God. Uh, God is spirit, we worship him in spirit and truth. So God does not have physical reproductive parts, doesn't have form or shape. Um, but God is not an it either, and it in our language is impersonal. God is a personal God, uh, so God is referred to as him. Now, raises the question, why is God not referred to as her? Uh, and there's no real answer to that question, um, although we'll, we'll, it is partly addressed, except that God, this is how God has chosen to reveal himself. God had to identify himself by one gender, seeing as we don't have a, a word that... Um, a, a personal pronoun that doesn't have gender. Um, if the gender had been uh, her, uh, you'd have the same issue. The very important thing to realize is that God is not male or female. Um, so in Genesis, we see that uh, men and women are made in the image of God. So if you take that backwards, uh, that means that, that God is reflective of both male and female characteristics. This is where life gets tricky, because what are male and female characteristics once you take out uh, physical um, attributes? Um, and, and here you get into yourself into strife, because there's huge stereotyping involved. But um, uh, God is nurturing and caring, which is generally seen as more feminine characteristics. God is strong and protecting, again, generally seen as more masculine. Now, we know that guys can be caring and nurturing. We know that women can be uh, strong and protective. So this is where you get yourself into strife. But uh, all male and female characteristics, from a, not from a physical point of view, but from an attribute point of view, uh, are reflected in God. Now, there's about 170 instances that God is described as father. Now, he's not literally a father in the sense of procreation. This is a metaphor. Uh, God is described as fire, but God is not literally fire. We understand that. Um, so, so why fire? Uh, why father? Sorry. Well, traditionally, fathers were protectors and suppliers for a family, and it might not be the case so much now. But um, it describes when the, God is called as a father. It describes care, protection, strength, and provision. It's also really important to realize that while it's not as prominent, God is also described in female terms uh, in the Bible. Uh, God is described as, again using a metaphor, of giving birth to the nation of Israel. Uh, God is described as uh, like a mother feeding Israel, as protecting Israel, and the illustration uses of a female bear with her cubs as an analogy, uh, of God uh, comforting Israel and teaching Israel to walk. So, uh, God is also described uh, in, uh, in a sense as a mother, not as much, but as a mother as well. Interestingly, um, the Spirit of God, so the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit of God is always a feminine term, uh, given a feminine gender. Now, be careful about the relevance of that because things now can be given gender without uh, necessarily relating to the object. What about Jesus? Uh, surely Jesus was a male. Well, we know he was a male in terms of anatomy. He was a male. He was circumcised. Um, but we mustn't confuse Jesus' human nature with his divine nature. I mean, the fact that Jesus is a man no more proves that God is male than it proves that God is Jewish or God is mortal. Um, 
Jesus is also described as God's son, uh, now, but he's not literally a son. He's not a son in, in the sense that uh, he, uh, sorry, as God's son. So, so um, there's no sense in which God, uh, you know, conceived uh, of, of Jesus. So son, again, is a metaphor um, to be God's son. The, the Jewish leaders um, understood this. They understood that when you said that um, someone was someone's son, or if you were God's son, the implication was it means that you're of God and the same as God. So they were mortified when Jesus claimed to be the son of God, because that meant he was of God, uh, from God, and the same as God. So again, son is a metaphor. One of the balancing things around the fact God is always described as uh, in, with a male pronoun is that the church is always described with a feminine, as a bride, as a she. Now, obviously, the church is made up of male and female. Um, and the implication of this is that God wants to be in an uh, intimate relationship with his people, the church. Uh, it's describing this relationship at the very deepest level. Uh, as between uh, a bride and her husband. In ancient times, all the other religions made images of their God. Now, um, in the Ten Commandments, uh, Israelites were um, told never to make an image, a physical image of God. Um, God, you couldn't make a physical image of God, so you weren't to try. But when the ancients made physical images of God, they they then had to give them a gender, uh, because they were a calf or a... um, some kind of animal normally, or some kind of uh, semi-human sort of form. And so they always uh, assigned a gender to their gods. Israel was told never to make an image of God. And in fact, God is unique in the ancient world in the sense that there was no gender attached to him. What about the creation story? Uh, People accuse the creation story of being sexist, um, that... Uh, Eve is called uh, Adam's helper, uh, you know, his sort of assistant to do things, that, that uh, Adam named Eve, so that gave her authority uh, over Eve, that, that Adam was born first, so he's the most important, that it says in Genesis 3 that men shall rule over women, and uh, so surely this is, is all sexist sort of stuff. Um, I mean, there's no doubt these scriptures can be read uh, in a certain way and have been used by males over centuries and centuries to propagate male dominance. It's a total perversion of what's actually taught in the scriptures. So let me briefly uh, undo this. Uh, First of all, in Genesis 1, the context is it says that male and female, uh, men and women, are made in the image of God, uh, have a direct relationship with God, and have shared responsibility for creation. Eden is this place of harmony between God, uh, man and woman and creation, living in, in perfect order, cooperation, partnership, equality, uh, mutual fulfillment and peace. This is what life was meant to be like before the fall. When Eve is described as Adam's helper, uh, it's, in some ways it's a really unfortunate translation because if we say someone's my helper, uh, it implies inferiority. You know, you're my helper, you just sort of do some jobs around the place. Uh, the Bible, the word helper, doesn't have that connotation, and, and so it's really probably an unfortunate translation. Uh, God is described as Israel's helper. There's no way that God is being described as inferior to the nation of Israel. Um, helper means someone who can do stuff that you cannot do. Uh, so there's no sense here of dominance whatsoever. Uh, in describing Eve as Adam's helper. Some people argue, well, Adam named Eve. Uh, Naming is a sign of authority. Um, Again, not really uh, what the Scripture says. In Genesis 2.23, he calls her a woman, which is the proper noun, the term given by God. Uh, After the fall, he names her Eve. And it's a the word Eve uh, has, in Hebrew, is a sort of sound of living uh, and is is a term of honor. It's a recognition that Adam recognized that the human race would continue uh, through Eve and that redemption would happen through Eve. So there's no sort of uh, male rulership idea in him naming Eve. 
some people say, well, Adam was the main first, and so, so he's got to be uh, number one. Um, actually, Adam was created both male and female, and then they were separated, Adam was separated into male, uh, man and woman, so there's no first. Some people say, well, women are inferior because they're created out of man. Um, again, uh, this is highly likely not a literal story, um, but uh, that's a tricky argument because man is made out of, men are made out of dust, so you don't want to sort of push that analogy too far. We're <laughs> um, saying women are inferior because they're created out of man, or man's created out of dust. Um, Eve is blamed for the fall. Eve's, Eve's the one that tempted Adam with the apple. It wasn't really an apple, but, um, you know, she's the blame for uh, the mess the world's in. Well, actually, no, they both uh, chose to disobey God. Really, the question of what happened at the fall, again, uh, whether it's a literal description or a, a parable, uh, it doesn't matter. But um, Adam chose to follow Eve, uh, not God. Eve chose to follow uh, Satan. Uh, neither chose to follow God. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, they were choosing to take the place of God. And we read there's a consequence to that. And a consequence, one of the consequences is that God says that women will desire men, but men will rule over them. Okay, so this is a result of the fall. This is not God's intention that men will rule over women. Uh, it's never his intention at all. This is a result of the fall. And it's not hard to see. You might think, look at that scripture and say, oh, that's terrible. Men uh, will rule over women, but women will desire men. But the reality is that's, that's a description of history, the history of women over the centuries. That is true. The lot of women uh, has been terrible, uh, appalling, abuse and oppression and slavery. Uh, the list could go on and on. Um, and unfortunately, the church has sometimes been part of that. But that was never God's heart or intention. Uh, the creation story shows the exact opposite. Uh, that uh, men and women created equal before God uh, and to uh, have stewardship over the world and relate to God together. So the creation story is not sexist if it's read properly. What about the issue of sexual violence? Um, the Bible contains some terrible sexual violence. It doesn't glorify it. Sometimes it describes it rather discreetly but it certainly doesn't hide it. Often, actually, we as Christians are guilty of minimizing it. Take um, Abraham and David, two of the heroes of the faith. Abraham's called the father of faith. David is the sort of ideal model king. Um, you know, Abraham, by faith, left Canaan. Uh, but it says in Genesis 12, he left Canaan to avoid a famine, goes down to Egypt. Uh, he's married uh, to Sarah. He's, when they go down to Pharaoh, uh, to Egypt, he's worried that uh, he'll get killed because his wife's really beautiful, and so he'll get killed so that Pharaoh can take his wife. And so he uh, propagates this uh, lie and, and tells everyone to say that she is his sister, which is sort of half true because he's half-sister, but we won't go into marrying your half-sister. All right. Um, let's forget about that. But, um, the Egyptian Pharaoh Caesar finds out she's Abraham's sister and takes her to his harem. Now, aside from the fact she's taken to a harem, uh, the Hebrew word for took has a sexual connotation, um, sexual sort of meaning, really. So um, his wife is taken uh, into his harem as a sex slave. She, uh, he um, gets his life spared and gets paid. It says he gets donkeys and lots of animals and lots of servants uh, from Pharaoh because of this. Uh, now, First of all, that's the reality of this era, that leaders could do those kind of things and get away with it. Pharaohs could sort of do that. Um, but Abram basically allows his wife to be sold to save his own skin and makes a huge profit at the same time. We don't tend to talk about that as one of the heroes of the faith. David. We know uh, David is this ideal king. We know that um, the story of him committing adultery with Bathsheba. We tend to sort of minimize the story by saying, well, you know, he, it was consensual adultery. Uh, he sort of, you know, fell for Bathsheba. Uh, the story doesn't actually say that at all. Uh, it says that David was meant to be out fighting wars and said he was at home. He was on his palace roof. He looked down and he saw Bathsheba uh, and she was really beautiful. And uh, 
So uh, he uh, asked her to come to the palace, and uh, they end up uh, having sex. Uh, then uh, he gets um, her wife, Bathsheba's wife, killed, and then end up marrying. Um, but, you know, as Christians, we tend to say, oh, well, Bathsheba must have sort of flaunted herself on the roof as she's bathing, and it's really, you know, really sort of, uh, she's to blame as much as anyone. Um, in those days, though, the reality was, if the king sent for you, and remember the king was uh, her husband's employer, because Uriah, the husband, was in the army, so uh, direct relationship employer. If the king sent for you, you went. <laughs> no one disobeyed the king. Um, she had no choice. Uh, he was absolute power as king. Now, given this power dynamic, um, really this could be conceived as rape. Uh, certainly, uh, well, really, yeah, it could be conceived as rape. Um, she had no choice in this whatsoever. There are heaps of other stories in the Bible of gang rape and prostitutes being chopped up and mutilated and all kinds of stuff. But recording it doesn't mean the Bible condones it. The Bible is simply recording the reality of what happened. This is the reality of much of history and it's the reality of women still today. Um, to not record it in the Bible, uh, to ignore it, would actually be worse. And the violence that we see in the Bible is simply indicative of the ancient world. It was a brutal place to be if you're a woman. It never promotes such violence. So those that argue the Bible is responsible for sexual violence are simply wrong. Sexual violence has been a reality since day dot, and the Bible reflects that. Interestingly, um, the Bible records genealogies, and you know, so-and-so... Uh, this child, got the really boring bits of the Bible. So-and-so's had this son. Da, da, da. In the ancient world, uh, when they wrote genealogies, they always doctored the genealogies. So you missed out sort of people that weren't very important or very interesting. Um, so the, the genealogies always sort of skipped, uh, just had the prominent people because they're covering uh, many centuries. Interestingly, the genealogies of Jesus, so genus, Jesus' genealogy, includes both women who are victims of sexual abuse, uh, like Bathsheba, prostitutes like Rahab, uh, and sexual abusers like David and Abraham. What that says, I think, by including those people in the genealogies of Jesus, what it says is that the grace of God is greater than the sin, both for the victims of sexual abuse and the perpetrators of sexual abuse. Bible never hides from the consequences of sexual sin, but it does give hope to us all. What about Levitical law? Now, many people can't be bothered reading the book of Leviticus. Um, I confess it is pretty hard work. Um, I'm determined before I finish uh, my ministry, I'm going to preach through Leviticus uh, and not kill people in the process. Um, but it's a really hard book to read. Um, and if you do read it, you can be appalled at some of the stuff in it. Um, you know, how can this be God's law? We read laws that seem to say that women are unclean if they're having periods, or and they're forced to stay at home, that women seem to be treated like chattels. Uh, and so it's not easy read when you read this thing um, from our perspective. And some Christians have argued, well, you know, yeah, but it was ancient times, and it was probably better than the laws of the surrounding places. Well, unfortunately, when you do the research, that's probably not the truth. Um, we have records of 10 of the ancient sort of law codes from um, the ancient world, from that period of time. And if you compare the laws um, uh, of Moses compared with other ancient laws, when it comes to the issue of uh, the role of woman and, and how women fare and the rights of women, uh, well, it's sort of like... Some are a bit better, some are a bit worse. You know, it's sort of, uh, it's pretty hard to argue that it's significantly better. But the one unique thing about the law of Moses was that it affirmed that there was one God. All the other laws, there's multiple gods and whatnot. Um, the law of Moses totally confirmed, uh, totally, um, you know, asserts there is only one God. And generally tends to be a little bit kinder. Um, but you can't really argue that it's better for women's rights. Before I look at some, a particular text in, in Leviticus, you've got to understand that um, Old Testament law is part of what's called progressive revelation. So God, over the centuries, God has progressively revealed more and more of his character. Now, this climaxes in Jesus Christ. 
uh, God revealing himself in human form. Um, so we've got to understand that. We've also got to understand that the Bible says, when you get to the New Testament, that law was a very imperfect way of dealing with human behavior. Um, it's not a perfect revelation of God and his character. The, the ancient law didn't turn the customs of the day upside down. It tried to regulate them. So it was written in the context of a patriarchal world. Uh, Old Testament law assumes male dominance and women are defined by relationship to men. I mean, there's no arguing about that. Um, however, within the law, women are not depersonalized. Women are, are responsible to God to keep the law. Um, mothers and fathers are to be honored by their children. The key purpose of the law was actually to keep uh, Jewish culture intact uh, throughout millennium. Um, and so that was its primary purpose. So it's within this context we need to look at the law, not through today's lens. So I want to look at one example. Um, I've only got time for one, um, but it's a classic one that's often used by critics of the Bible. And it's that uh, this accusation, does the Bible teach that a woman who's been raped has to marry her rapist? Now this just sounds absolutely appalling. So Deuteronomy 22, 28 and 29 reads, you know, if a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married, not engaged to be married, and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Now, this sounds absolutely appalling. <laughs> like, uh, so the woman's been raped, uh, and now she's made to marry the rapist. Um, like, how, how can that be? That's just appalling. So, Let's try and get our heads around this. First of all, a couple of verses earlier uh, in Deuteronomy 22, the penalty for rape if the woman was engaged uh, for the guy was rape, uh, was death. So clearly rape's been taken seriously if two verses earlier uh, the guy's being killed for rape. Um, but in ancient times, a woman who'd lost her virginity was not seen as fit to marry. So if you could not get married so you had no man to care for you, you would be in poverty and highly likely forced into prostitution. Most prostitutes in ancient days uh, didn't do it, uh, I was going to say voluntarily, but simply as it was the only means to survive. So this law meant that the woman who was raped was protected and provided for for the rest of her life, because he can't divorce her. Because there were divorce laws, but this specifically says he couldn't divorce her. So this lifelong responsibility actually acted as a deterrent to rape. The other mitigating factor in this law is that in Exodus uh, 22, it stated that the rape victim's father could decide if she should marry her rapist or not. That is, the father is assumed to have his daughter's best interests at heart, so he could choose to care for her himself and potentially the child if, if she fell pregnant to the rape. Uh, or he might know that there's someone else, um, because remember marriages were sort of arranged in those days, he, could, he might know there's someone who, despite the fact that it was known she'd been raped, would still be willing to marry her. So it's not quite as terrible as it seems. So we've got to look at this law within its context of the ancient world and not judge it by today's standards. Um, and then we must look at the whole law as part of God's progressive revelation and not make superficial judgments. But I want to end by looking at Jesus because all this stuff in the Old Testament could leave us seriously depressed um, and uh, confused. But as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is God in human form. So if we want to understand God's heart uh, about sexual equality, we need to see how does Jesus interact with a woman? What did Jesus model? Now, again, we've got to set some context here before we do this. Woman, uh, we get to Jesus' time, so we're talking about you know, um, 20 BC or somewhere around there, uh, when Jesus was in ministry. Women were held on incredibly low self-esteem. Few were educated because they were regarded by the rabbis as being too light-minded to be taught anything. Middle-class Jews saw women as scum. They're on the same level as prostitutes, tax collectors, and Samaritans. They were like the bottom of the bottom. They had no or very few legal rights. They were treated as minors, um, like a child. They couldn't give evidence uh, in court. 
In public, they were heavily veiled so they'd be unrecognizable. You couldn't recognize who they were. A Jewish man was forbidden to talk to a woman on the street, even if it was his wife, okay, or his daughter, or his sister. It was forbidden even to look at women, which caused lots of problems because of well, accidents, because Jewish men would uh, have to look away when they happened to see a woman coming, and then they'd run into things. Um, so it was a bit dangerous. Fortunately, they weren't driving. Um, they were regarded as the property of the husband. They could be divorced for anything, like not cooking the steak properly, or leaving the toilet seat down, or anything. I made that last bit up. Um, uh, so that's the context in which Jesus is born. All right? Into that context, uh, we read of Jesus and how he interacted with women in the biographies of Jesus. How do he interact? Well, I mean, the first thing you notice is that he interacts with women with, uh, and treats them with absolute respect and dignity. He also said uh, that prostitutes would come into the kingdom ahead of male leaders. Okay, now you can imagine the impact of saying that uh, in that context. He taught uh, women as disciples. That was unheard of, totally unheard of. Now, I know he chose 12 male disciples. Um, that's simply because it would have been impossible, given that we weren't allowed to talk to uh, females. Uh, he couldn't have had uh, a band of female disciples. But it says... Um, like passages like when um, Jesus and Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. Uh, now, sitting at the feet of Jesus, I mean, it is a literal expression. That's where she was sitting. But, but it has a far deeper meaning than that. Uh, it means that that's the expression that used of a disciple sitting at a rabbi's feet. Jesus was teaching Mary. Uh, totally unheard of. Many women were healed. Peter's mother-in-law, synagogue leader's daughter, Gentile woman's demon-possessed daughter, the woman who was bleeding. He healed woman. He engaged with women in public, uh, both Jew and Gentile woman in public. Um, he touched them. Again, totally countercultural. He liberated a woman from the oppressive laws of adultery and divorce by his teaching. His illustrations that he used included woman, a uh, woman in the coin, um, the widow and the judge, the woman making bread, the widow's offering. So in his teaching, he included woman. Again, very rare. Uh, wherever you go, oh, he was supported by women. Uh, so his, his ministry was supported by different women that um, publicly uh, or helped give money to support what he was doing. Women were central at the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Some have said that um, a key way you can know that the resurrection story is not made up is that the first, woman, uh, first person to see Jesus alive was a woman, and you'd never make that up if you're writing it because women had no legal status. So you'd never make up that if you're trying to make up an account about Jesus. Um, John Stott, famous uh, theologian, said, Without any fuss or publicity, Jesus terminated the curse of the fall, reinvesting the woman with her partially lost nobility and claimed for his kingdom the original creation blessing of sexual equality. Jesus was radically counterculture. We forget that because we read it through 21st century eyes. Uh, but Jesus' ministry totally uh, shows God's heart for sexual equality. So is the Bible sexist? As we conclude. Is the Bible sexist and by implication is God sexist? And the answer is no. However, over the centuries the Bible has been misused to support male domination and even abuse. Uh, it was never... God's intention on a heart. The Bible unflinchingly records the reality of sexual violence, but never supports it. The Bible accurately portrays a patriarchal era, but it was never God's design. In the creation story, read properly, and in Jesus' time on earth, we clearly see God's heart for equality and partnership. But, you say, but, what about the New Testament? What about those passages about headship and women being silent in church and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I'm going to deal with that next week. <laughs> all right? So I'm not putting it off. I'm dealing with it next week. Before we come to communion, uh, has anyone got any questions about what I've said tonight? Any curly questions? Yes, sorry. Yes?
It's a flood coming. Yeah. So it did. Yeah. The thing is, because when God created the, the man and the woman, was beautiful, was perfect, like you say, you know. Yeah. But, you know, we know Satan come because he's a falling angel. He destroyed that. Yeah. And then anyway, coming forward to uh, Sodom and tomorrow, you know, like the yeah. two angels went in there and they want to break in lot. Yeah. You know, and then what happened, um, you know, Sodom and tomorrow was, was destroyed. Yeah. My question is, are we living in times, because everywhere is always talk about six, six. Yeah. I mean, like God created the six, he said, be multiplied. Yeah. And now everywhere, everybody's sort of scary, you know, to go near a woman or a man, go, a woman go near the man. I think, do you think uh, we live in times such as uh, when God cleaned the flood, when God destroys Sodom and tomorrow? Um, yeah, that's my question. Thanks. I think that... I think if you read uh, history widely, um, you'll find that uh, the sexuality of today is no uh, worse or better than other times in history. Uh, Roman times um, in the early church were um, particularly, um, you know, if, if you know, some Christians might be concerned about, say, homosexuality today, but homosexuality was far more prevalent in ancient times uh, than today. Uh, they've discovered, they've dug up hunks of Rome and whatnot, and um, they discovered that their, the, the, like the Kmart pottery that you buy, mugs and whatnot, um, were all, only pottery you could buy was all covered in pornographic images. So... Um, it was like you get in a Kmart to buy your mug to have your tea, and uh, it was all just covered in pornographic images. So I don't think we're any worse uh, or better than other times in history in terms of, um, yeah. I mean, there is, a, there is a, definitely an obsession with sexuality today, um, but I wouldn't say it's any worse than other significant times in history, if you look at history. Um, and yes, one day God will come back uh, and we'll all be answerable um, to God. I mean, that's the, the big picture story of the Bible is that one day God will return and there will be judgment. Yeah. But I'd hesitate to say that we're, um, we certainly live in different, we have a different attitude. Uh, and there's no doubt there's this, there is a, you know, a society is saturated by sex. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say that it's any worse than other periods of history. So, any other questions? Yes? Uh, yeah, I recently did a painting and uh, used a scripture from Ecclesiastes, yes. which is a beautiful scripture. Yep. It says he made everything beautiful in its time, yep. which is just lovely, and, set, and he also set eternity in the hearts of all men. Yep. And when I did it, I thought, oh, all men... You know, um, I sort of almost tempted to put all people. Yep. <laughs> I thought, well, that's not what it says in the word. But to me, that implies all people. Yep, so, so um, uh, I'm not an advocate. I mean, there are some people that would advocate that um, we should change the pronoun of God to be she or whatever. I disagree with that. However, um, you know, the term men uh, was used as representative of, of mankind. Um, humanity. I mean, you could argue mankind is sexist as well, but um, I mean, the term is used, and so um, many uh, modern translations now will have translated that. If you go to NIV, uh, the NIV uh, version that sort of uh, has, has dealt with those gender issues, some of the newer translations have, have said actually it's not accurate to say men when actually that's what the word says in the Hebrew, but actually uh, it means all of humanity. Um, and so, yeah, so there's no hassles in doing that at all. Yep. Well, 
No, in fact, you'll see that in some translations. I'll, talk, I'll show you afterwards. Um, I'll look that up. Uh, I know the verse you mean. Um, yeah, there'll be translations that translate that term because the term men meant to the uh, ancient reader, it meant all humanity. It wasn't a gender-exclusive term. So, yeah, so there's no hassle on changing it. Any other questions? Can I push back on that? You're not allowed to ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes. I just, uh, so you did a little um, exegesis of that passage in Deuteronomy, um, just around um, a, a woman that's raped, is, is for, uh, not forced to, but, but has this... Yeah. Opt- I, I mean, I, mean I, I get where it comes from. Obviously, there's that sense in which that's better than being homeless and yeah. forced. In, but that's still abhorrent. Absolutely. But I mean, I mean, there's just no way you can sell it as as a good thing. I mean, are we are we talking? Uh, my, my question is: Is this simply a means of financial support so she's not actually forced to live with this man, or, or is it is it is it actually? I mean, does she literally have to live alongside a rapist every single day if that's what her father? Yeah. Because the reality is, is even in that statement right there, the daughter is physically a possession of her father until he releases her into marriage. So yeah. I, I, my, my, my question is, is the Old Testament sexist? I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> yeah. So I hate to fight yeah, yeah. Yep, so, staff members here, yeah, but, but, yeah, but you know what I'm trying to say? Yep, because that's absolutely. abhorrent, isn't it? Yep. So, um, you know, the point was that it's abhorrent, however... Uh, given the context in which of the ancient world, uh, it's less abhorrent than it might appear at, f- at face value. Um, Percentage points here, aren't we? <laughs> like we're talking like it's abhorrent 99%, now it comes down to maybe 85 Yep. But it's still abhorrent. Yep, so there's no denying that. Um, but, uh, I mean, the cop-out, I suppose, is that the father could say... Uh, that's terrible and, you know, not to live with a guy. Um, so that is the redeeming sort of feature of that. Um, alternatively, you know, I'm sure she could choose not to. Um, and, you know, is that alternative worse, um, being forced into prostitution? So um, there's no easy um, way, uh, you know, the consequences are going to be bad, whichever way you looked at it, really. A, she'd been raped, that's bad enough. But then the subsequent consequences were also going to be bad, whichever way you looked at it, um, in that context of that ancient world. She was either doomed um, or, you know, so yeah, there were some, some hard choices. Um, so yeah, so it's not easy, no. <laughs> Push back a bit more there. Yes. Um, but maybe I'm running out of time. Anybody else? Yep, yep sorry, yep. You waving your hand? Oh, sorry, there's a hand up here. Oh, right. <laughs> Tricky, yes. Um, Jesus directly speaks about his father. Right. God as his father. Yes. Um, and it says that Jesus, that Mary was found of child of the Holy Ghost. Right. So, well, I would argue the point that Jesus is directly descended from God as his son. Like, literally. Okay. Um, Yes. Jesus was alive as Jesus. He was the word of God before he became a man. He was the Word of God. He was with God. So prior to Jesus coming to earth, uh, he was uh, with God. Yeah. Uh, and uh, equal with God. And uh, in the Trinitarian relationship. Well, the whole Trinity thing is a Roman Catholic uh, teaching. I don't even say the word trinity okay the word trinity is not in the bible okay so that's a separate debate probably don't have time to do it now um uh, 
but um, yeah, I mean, if you don't accept the Trinity, I, I understand uh, where you're coming from in terms of your argument. However, um, you know, uh, uh, majority of the church uh, does accept the Trinity, even though that concept is not the Trinity is not named, but um, would accept that uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father are um, three persons, one God. So um, we'd have to have that debate another time. But yeah, I understand if you don't accept that, um, where that argument comes from. But yeah, we would push back on that, um, as would, um, you know, uh, virtually all the church accepts um, the Trinity as part of core doctrine. So yeah, so we'd have to have that discussion another time. Yes? Jesus um, talks about uh, that he gives us um, the Holy Spirit as a helper. And when I first learned, uh, read the Bible and I understood the Bible, I was shocked. I was like, oh, have you been just called the helper? The, the woman just a helper? But then actually I heard that Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper. And yes. I was like, wow, if I'm, you know, a helper yes. like the Holy Spirit, that's... Yes. That is not a low status. No, that is amazing. No. Yeah. That's a good. That's yeah. a good. So um, that's, that's actually a, yep. a revelation there. Yep. And um, yeah, so the Holy Spirit has definitely uh, been a part of the Trinity right from the start. And it's also, I mean, Jesus talks about the person of the Holy Spirit quite frequent in the Bible. So it's yep. not like that you can cut it out or something. Yep. So yeah. Yep. Good point. Um. I just want to end on a personal note um, before we, as we come to communion, because um, you could say what I'm being talking about tonight is sort of fairly academic. Um, the reality is, there's nothing academic about abuse um, and the demeaning of woman. Uh, and so, for some of the guys here, you know, we might need to consider our own attitudes whether we've consciously or subconsciously demeaned women with their jokes or their comments uh, through watching porn. It's an epidemic of porn, and porn by its nature uh, is demeaning of women. And by watching porn, you're participating uh, in that industry and in the demeaning of women. Uh, you might have even used the Bible to support a sexist position. Sometimes your bias can be conscious or unconscious. Um, as we come to communion, we need to do some serious soul-searching about how we relate to woman and what is God saying to us through his word and through his spirit. For some of the women here, uh, you might not have always found church a safe place. You might have been put down as a woman, you might not have been allowed to use gifts of leadership. You might have been abused in some way. And I want to say on behalf of the church that that is not right and it's not God's intention. And so I want to apologize if the church has not been a safe place. If you see behavior or attitudes that are not right here, then I want to encourage you please to speak up. To talk to one of the female elders in the church. You will be listened to. Uh, whether what you're talking about is present or historical makes no difference. It might be, uh, in fact, there's a high likelihood that for some of you, you've been victims of abuse, whether it be at, um, you know, uh, at a fairly low level up to extreme makes no difference, but you might well have been the victim of abuse. As we come to communion, we remember Jesus' death on a cross. And one of the things I want to remind you is that communion, in communion we find both someone, uh, through communion and through Jesus' death on the cross, we find forgiveness for sin, whatever that sin is. But also at the cross we find healing from sin. Jesus was sexually abused on the cross. He was stripped naked. He was done, it was done to shame uh, him. It was a form of abuse. We never see that in the pictures, uh, portrayals of Jesus on the cross. But he knows what it's like to be abused sexually. And as we come to the cross, as we come to communion this morning, uh, this evening, sorry, 
Uh, I invite you as you take the bread and the drink both to allow the Spirit to search your heart, in terms of your own attitudes, but also as you come, you might want to come and ask that you find healing in the cross. That actually Jesus knows what it's like to suffer and to experience pain. And actually, through the cross, we can begin a journey of healing, of finding wholeness in Jesus Christ, of a purity of love and acceptance and healing that only God can bring. So I invite you to come forward to take the bread and the drink. There's going to be some music playing. And uh, just take the bread and the drink back to your seats and just respect the space um, as a sacred space. Respect this time as a sacred time to allow the Spirit of God to be at work in your lives. Let me pray. God, as we've talked about some tough stuff tonight, God, uh, for some there might be questions, for some disagreement, confusion. For others, Lord God, this might have brought pain to the surface. For some, Lord, it might have brought a conviction. God, I ask that through your Spirit that you'd meet us as we take this bread and this drink. Some supernatural way, God, that you'll meet us in this place. So we ask for, for cleansing, for wholeness, for renewal, just for a fresh, uh, just a fresh uh, touch of your spirit, Lord God, on our lives. God, I ask you to meet us in this place and in this space through that bread representing your body, through the drink representing the new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.